Welcome to Kingdom Testimonies. This is Lisa. It is Friday. Uh, I believe it's October 1st. I haven't looked at the calendar yet, but uh, yes, it is October 1st. Um, I like this time of year because it's cooler. The days, like today is going to be around 80, which is beautiful in the desert. Um, and I like when the leaves change, even though I'm in the desert, there's people roundabout that have planted normal trees. I hope to do that probably yet this fall. I think I might try and plant a fruit tree. Um, but I'm from Minnesota originally, and the fall colors up there, oh, I'm telling you, I suppose it's like West Virginia and other places like that. Just gorgeous, but we don't get a lot of that here. So when I see a tree that's full of color, I sometimes will just stop and stare at it. Um, so on Monday, like I said yesterday, we're going to start for Ezra, which is two Ezras, E-S-D-R-A-S. We're going to start that on Monday. I looked at first Esdras, and it's it it reads pretty much kind of like history of basically what was going on in the time period, and we already know what was going on. What I want to focus on is um, kind of kind of focusing on end times. Things, things that are more, I would say, urgent for the time we find ourselves in. Many, many, many uh, modern day teachers are, are in agreement, as I am, that we are in the last days, like as in the last decade. I'm not a prophet. I don't claim to be a prophet, but I'm, I'm pretty much convinced. And if we're not, okay, well, we got more time to go. But we are living in a day where because of technology and the way the world is going with earthquakes, volcanoes, just weather, everything appears to be gearing up toward the consummation of time. So yesterday I said today was going to be just a mystery read day. And there is a chapter in a book that it's a book I found. Now I've always been interested in really old like history books, old Christian history books. This one is from 1901. So 120 years old. It's written by mostly, edited, says by R.A. Torrey, but it has some Charles Spurgeon in it. It has uh, a bunch of other people that aren't really well known, but Dwight Moody contributed to it. Um, it just has mm, initials there, so I'm not sure exactly who all these people are. They contribute to it. But there was a chapter in this book, and I, I found this book when I first moved to this town in 1996. There, I, 
it was at like a, a rummage sale or something and I was just I mean I was just so glad to have it the name of the book is how to promote and conduct a successful revival and there's one chapter now because the book is so old there's no copyright infringement for me reading it um, there's one chapter on the importance of the conversion of children and <clears throat> I want to read a little bit in that chapter. I have to be really careful with this book because it's it's like falling apart. And I'm not sure if the chapter is too long. Let me see. Well, let's just let's just read a little bit in here. Um, it says the conversion of a child is important in the first place because children oftentimes die. Most people in Chicago die in childhood. This is in 1901. For everyone who dies between 20 and 40, there are many who die between birth and 20. So with very many of the children at any time upon the earth, they must be converted in childhood or pass into eternity unconverted. In spite of the large number of children's caskets that pass us in hearses, it is hard to bring people to realize how likely children are to die. We look at the white-haired man and say he is likely to die soon, but we look at the little child and think that child is many years before it. That is not at all sure. We have very rude awakenings from this dream. Mothers and fathers, do you realize that your children may die? Up quick then and lead them to Christ before that day comes. If you do not it, if you do not, it will be the darkest day you ever knew but if you have led them to Christ, it will not be a dark day. Lonely, it will. It will be, but not dark. Nay, it will be glorious with the thought that the voyage is over and the glory land reached quickly by one you love. Sunday school teachers, do you realize that any one of the boys and girls in the class you teach may die any day? Up then and win them to Christ as speedily as you may. The conversion of children is important in the second place because it is much easier to win a child to Christ than an adult. I once heard Dr. Ian Kirk of Boston say, If I could live my life over again, I would labor much more among children. During a series of meetings lasting sometimes five or six weeks, I have seen more children converted the first week than adults in all the weeks following. Children have no old prejudices to overcome as many grown people have. With the help of the Holy Spirit, they are easily led to feel the great love of Christ in giving himself to die for them. And when the simple story of his suffering and death is read and explained from God's word, they believe it and exercise saving faith. And there and then the Holy Spirit effects a change of heart. Mr. Spurgeon once said in my hearing, I could spend days in giving details of young children how I have, whom I have known and personally conversed with who have given evidence of a change of heart. And he added, I have more confidence in the spiritual life of such children whom I have taken into my church than I have in the spiritual condition of adults thus received. I will go further and say that I have usually found a clearer knowledge of the gospel and a warmer love toward Christ in the child convert than in the man convert. I may astonish you by saying that I have sometimes met with a deeper spiritual experience in a child of 10 or 12 than in some persons of 50 or 60. I have known a child who would weep himself to sleep by the month together under a crushing sense of sin. If he would know deep and bitter and awful fear of the wrath of God, 
let me tell you what I felt as a boy. If you want to know what faith in Christ is, you must not look to those who have been bemuddled by the heretical jargon of the times, but to the dear children who have taken Jesus at his word and believed on him and therefore know and are sure that they are saved. Every year that passes over our heads unconverted, our hearts are less open to holy impressions. Every year away from Christ, our hearts become harder in sin. That needs no proof. The practice of sin increases the power of sin in our lives. God in heaven and Christ and holiness lie very near childhood. But if the child remains away from Christ, every year they become farther and farther away. When I see a child walk into the inquiry room of a Sunday evening, I feel quite certain that if a worker of any sense gets hold of that child, it is going to be converted. But when I see a man or woman walk in there, I do not feel at all as sure. The adult has become so entangled in sin, the mind has become so darkened by the error and skepticism that arise out of sin. There are so many complications added by each year that the case of an adult is very difficult as compared with that of a child. The fact is that with very many, if they are not converted in childhood, they will never be converted at all. Fathers and mothers, that is true of the children in our homes. Sunday school teachers, that is true of the children in your Sunday school classes. It is now or never. Conversion of the children is important in the third place because converted children are among the most useful workers for Christ. They can reach persons who are inaccessible to everyone else. They can reach their schoolmates and playmates, the, Jew the Jewish children, the Catholic children, the children of worldly parents and infidels. They can bring them to Sunday school or to children's meetings and to Christ. You and I cannot get close enough to them to show them how beautiful Jesus is and what joy and blessing he brings. They can. Then they can reach their parents, oftentimes, when we cannot. They will not listen to us, but they will listen to their children. There was a rough, drunken gambler in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He often went by the mission door, but when a worker invited him in, he replied, repelled him with rude insults. But his child, about 10 years old, was gotten into the Sunday school and won for Christ. Then she began to work and pray for her drunken papa, and a cottage meeting was at last held in his wretched home. The father took down his overcoat to go to the saloon. Little Annie asked him if he would not stay to the meeting. He roughly answered, no. Won't you stay for my sake, papa? The man hung up his coat. The meeting began, and the man was surly and wished he was out of it. They knelt in prayer while he sat on the end of the sofa. One after another prayed. Then all were silent. Then Annie's little voice was heard in prayer something like this. God, save my papa. It broke the wicked man's heart, and then and there he accepted Christ. He afterwards became a deacon in my church. When New Year's Day came and many had testified for Christ, Annie arose and said, Papa used to drink and Mama used to drink. Grandpa used to drink and Grandma used to drink. But Papa is a Christian now and Mama is a Christian now and Grandpa is a Christian now and Grandma is a Christian now and Uncle Joe is a Christian now and Auntie is a Christian now. I guess we are all Christians down to our house now. But the little girl, little girl herself led the way. Wasn't the conversion of that child important? Many a hardened sinner and many a skeptic has been led to Christ by a child. 
When in Scotland, I heard a touching story showing how a child's simple question was used in leading a scoffing skeptic to the feet of Jesus. It is a true story. I was acquainted with the father of the child. Let the skeptic tell the story. As I stepped upon the platform at the railway station, a hand was laid upon my arm and a voice said, Norman, is this you? I turned and looked at the speaker. It was an old classmate, Richard, with whom I had agreed to pass a few weeks and had not seen for years. After we had pushed our way through the noisy crowd and were seated in his carriage, I looked at him again and exclaimed, Richard, how you have altered, how different now from the wild youth of old. Yes, Norman, there have been many changes with me since we parted, but the greatest has been here, said he, smiling and gently touching his breast. Hmm, was my expression, which elicited no reply. That evening, as he, his wife, and myself were walking in the conservatory, and I was admiring some jessamines, he said to me, Norman, I have yet a little treasure to show you, and although it is small, it is greater than all these, almost the greatest one I have. Can you guess? When we went back in to the drawing room, he showed to me his beautiful little girl, his only child, his little Bessie. I was not fond of children. But strangely did the little maiden win her way to my heart. Eight cloudless summers of her sunny life had passed, and at each one as it gently glided by, left with, he with her all its charm, she could not have been more beautiful. That evening, sweet in memory to me, we became firm friends. She loved me because, when she asked Papa, he said he did. The next day we all went out for a drive. Little Bessie was bright and beautiful as the day, but sometimes there was a strange thoughtfulness of expression upon her face, which troubled me as beyond, being beyond her years. As I was talking to her father, I said something jeeringly about him, who had led the only pure life on earth. Speaking about Jesus, Richard said not a word in reply, but motioned me to look at Bessie. She was looking into my face with a gaze of mingled horror and surprise, an expression such as I never saw before nor since and which I shall never forget. It was for a moment. No one spoke. Then the little maid burst into a flood of uncontrollable tears, and I felt a certain shame that in the presence of one so pure, I should have spoken what she had never heard before. Then she looked at me in a sort of pitying way and said, I thought you loved my Jesus. Oh, how could you have said that of him? During the rest of the drive, she lay upon her father's bosom in perfect silence. The next morning I was alone in my room, thinking of all that had occurred, and a strange, unaccountable feeling of seriousness was creeping over me, a sort of longing to be like her, when suddenly the little one was at my side. I started as I saw her, and met the tender gaze of love and pity which she bent upon me. Her head was laid upon my arm, and for a moment both were silent. Then the silence was broken with the words, "'Won't you love my Jesus?' And she was gone." I could not ridicule that lovely spirit. The next morning and the next and the next, the little girl came in the same way, said the same words, and disappeared. I never answered her, and at no other time did she allude to the subject, but she never failed to come at that morning hour. One day I said to her, Tell me how, Bessie. She looked at me a moment, and the next was seated on my knee, and the words that flowed, those simple childish words in which she told the story of Christ's love, Never shall I forget. My eyes were far from dry when she went away. 
but there was less sorrow on her face than usual. Morning after morning she came and never seemed weary of telling the sweet tale. But one morning she did not come, and I waited a long time in vain. No little feet came pattering along the hall. No little hand was clasped in mine. No little words of instruction were lisped in my ear. Presently there came a hurried knock at my door. It was open without waiting for permission, and her father was with me. Norman, said he. She has just waked from a long and heavy sleep and is fearfully ill. Will you come? Tell me if you know what it is. I went. There lay the little one with eyes closed and in a sort of stupor. I knew at a glance it was scarlet fever. How I told those two aching hearts I know not, but they were wonderfully calm in their anguish. The doctor soon confirmed my statement, but there was so painfully little to be done for the dear sufferer that two days passed almost in silence as we watched over her precious form. We knew from the first that she was no longer of the earth, and indeed it was a heavy burden for us to bear to think that she no longer would be the light of our hearts. I say we, for though I was perhaps mistaken, the little one had so taken possession of my heart that it seemed to me that she could not be dearer to those who had the first earthly claim upon her affections. At the end of the second day, her life seemed partially to return. She opened her eyes and smiling said, Dear Uncle Norman, won't you love my Jesus? Mama loves him, Papa loves him, and I love him, and I'm going to him, and I want to tell him that you will love him. Bessie, said I, tell him my heart and life are his forevermore. Mama, Papa, I am so happy now. Now I have all I want. Now I come. I come, Lord Jesus. And the youthful spirit, so pure, so holy, returned whence it came. God's little messenger had turned a soul to righteousness and was called home. <clears throat> okay, goodness, I have to take a breath there. Wow, what a story. Okay, let's go on. The conversion of children is important because persons converted in childhood make the best Christians. If one is converted when he is old, he has learned many bad tricks of character and life that have to be unlearned, and it is generally a pretty slow process. But when one is converted in childhood, character is yet, is yet to be formed, and it can be formed from the beginning on right lines. If you wish to train a tree into a thing of beauty and symmetry, you had better begin when it is young. If you want to form a character of Christ-like symmetry and beauty, you would better begin in childhood. That Christ-like man of the olden time, Polycarp, who ended his life as a martyr at 95, was converted at nine. That fine young man of the New Testament, Timothy, was brought up on scripture from a babe. I rejoice with all my heart when an old broken-down drunkard is brought to Christ. It means so much but it means so much more when a child is brought to Christ. The conversion of children is important once more because there are so many years of possible service before them. If one is to live to 80, say, if converted at 70, there is a soul saved plus 10 years of service. When the boy Polycarp was converted, there was a soul saved plus 86 years of service. I think enough has been said to show that the conversion of the children is tremendously important. In fact, the most important business the Church of Christ has on hand. Surely it was well that Jesus said, Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. All right, that's the end of that section. 
that was quite the story. I know that's uh, that's why this this book really made an impact on me, and I have to be really careful with the pages. Um, there is one more quick little section, and we have another 10 minutes, so I will read that. Who is responsible for the conversion of the children? First of all, the parents are responsible for the conversion of the children. The first and greatest responsibility of parents regarding their children is their salvation. The responsibility to feed and clothe and educate our children is nothing to our responsibility to bring them to Christ and bring them up in Christ. The parent who fails to bring his children to Christ has failed at the main point of parental responsibility. Yet parents are willing to leave the conversion of their children to others, to the minister, to the Sunday school teacher, or even to chance. What would you think of yourself if you left the feeding of your children and clothing of your children to others or to chance? You would despise yourself, and well you might, but you would not really be as despicable as if you left the salvation of your children to others. This is your highest and most solemn obligation as a parent to bring your children to Christ. Have you done it? If not, then go at it at once. I sat in the station of Evansville, Indiana one day waiting for a train. A man and wife came in with two babes, one a year and a half old, the other three. They sat down to wait for another train. I turned to the man and said, Are you a Christian? No, sir. Then I said, you are not fit to be the father of those children. God has laid a solemn responsibility upon you in giving you those children to bring up for him. Wow. <clears throat> I wonder what that guy thought. And I say to every parent who is not a Christian, an out-and-out out Christian, you are not fit to be a parent. The highest responsibility of fatherhood and motherhood you are unfit for. Get fit today by taking Christ and then begin at once to lead your children to Christ. And you who are professed Christians, seek power for this work and begin at once. In the next place, the responsibility for the conversion of the children rests upon all pastors, evangelists, and preachers of the word. We are too exclusively occupied with the grown-up people. But Christ's first direction to the great preacher Peter was that he was to prove his love by feeding the lambs. The minister or evangelist who overlooks the young is disobeying Jesus Christ. And the warning of Christ should come to him with great power. Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. The fact is that it is our pride that leads us to neglect the children. It is gratifying to our vanity to think that the grown people, and especially the men, flock to our ministry. Anyone, we fancy, can interest the children, but it takes men of our own great mental caliber to interest the men. Oh, take heed, take heed. In the eyes of our master, the children are of first importance. In the third place, responsibility for the conversion of the children rests upon the Sunday school teacher. The first and highest duty of the Sunday school teacher is to lead his scholars to Christ. The Sunday school teacher has not done his whole work when he interests his scholars or even when he instructs his scholars with good, sound, orthodox, biblical doctrine. His business is to convert them, to win them to Christ. Sunday school teacher, the probability is that there are scholars in your class that will be led to Christ by you or else will never come. Do you realize that? When you next sit before your class, let this thought sink deep into your heart. Some of these scholars are to be won to Christ by me or lost forever. 
Oh, it is a glorious thing, but it is a solemn thing to be a Sunday school teacher. What an opportunity, what a responsibility. Yet many and many a Sunday school teacher allows scholars to drift into their class and drift out of their class without any definite word to convert and save them. Under the first sermon I ever preached in Chicago, a young man was, a young woman was deeply stirred. She was elegantly dressed and occupied a respectable place in society, but only because her history was not yet known. She was as truly a sinner as any woman of the street. The next night, in conversation, she told me all her shameful story. I pleaded with her to accept Christ and have her vileness washed away. She said that I was the first person who had ever spoken to her about her soul. Her mother was worldly, but for six years she had been a regular attendant at one Sunday school, but never once had her teacher approached her personally about accepting Christ. And she had gone out into the world to sin and shame. What a responsibility rests upon the heads of that young woman Sunday school teachers. Oh, teachers, be soul winners. Realize the immense importance of the conversion of the children to Christ and feel deeply your own responsibility for those in your class. And finally, after Sunday school teachers, the responsibility for the conversion of the children rests upon all workers. We must save the old if we can, and thank God in many cases we can. But we must save the children anyhow. In church, in inquiry meeting, on the street, in the home, everywhere, look out for the children and take every possible opportunity to bring them to Christ. Wow. <clears throat> There's another section on how to, how to do it, and the steps on this is by prayer, um, use of the Word of God. We all know how to do it, right? Baptism of the Holy Spirit, holding meetings for children. Um, we know how to do it. Are we doing it? That is our number one priority as parents. So I just wanted to read that. It had a lasting effect on me when I read it over, well, 25 years ago. So with that, that's our Friday. And we will stop there. Monday, we're going to start on 2nd Esdras, and it is, let's just take a look at it, so we know how long is it. It doesn't look to be very long, 16 chapters, um, but the chapters can get a little lengthy, so this, this might take us a couple weeks. We don't want to rush through it. Um, there's a lot in there. And it's, it's very interesting. So I'm going to leave it there. Uh, with that, I pray you have a blessed day and a blessed weekend.